Hey guys, just an FYI that there are some swear words in this episode, just in case you were thinking of, like, listening at a loud volume somewhere where you don't want that to be heard. Enjoy! Hello, and welcome to The Rookie Podcast. I'm your host, Tavi Gevinson, and today on the show, we've got an interview with the writer George Saunders. Whatever your desire is, as long as it doesn't hurt anybody, I think the idea is to burn through it quickly, because then you find out what's on the other side of it. And we consult grown-ups Jenna Wortham and Jasmine Hughes from the New York Times Magazine to answer a question from a rookie reader. I mean, I have these moments all the time where I'm like, what would Rihanna do? (laughs) What would Nikki do? Absolutely. What would Beyonce do? But first, here's a life skill. It's coming to you all the way from Canada, where rookie contributor Ann T. Donahue lives. She's here to tell you why and how to just say no to whatever you don't want to do, but in a nice way, of course. This is Life Skills, where we share advanced level techniques for how to be a person or, you know, fake it so you seem like a person, which is the name of my game. And today, I'm going to tell you how to say no. And the thing about that is no has always been a very hard thing for me to say. I like to be that person that says yes to things and I like to seem like I can do all of it and I'm perfect and I can't like I'm never tired. uh, And that's not true. In fact, I love saying no to things. I like not doing things that don't make me happy. No isn't bad. So there, I'm saying it. I'm telling you, I'm absolving you right now. It's a reasonable answer to many questions that range from, do you want to go to this party? Can you help me move? Do you like Hozier? No to all of it. So behold, the guide to saying no right here blesses everyone. No offense to Hozier, just not my cup of tea. That's all I'm saying. Point number one, remember, you're never going to be called out on why you can't do a thing. Most of the time when you say no to more work or plans or an extracurricular, you're not going to be called out or in need of an explanation. Most human adults or beings won't pry. Unless you're saying no to a major life event like a wedding or a funeral or a mandatory school or work commitment, vanquish the fear that you'll have to come up with a reason behind your polite decline. Because, point number two, nobody cares. Did you hear that? That is the breath of relief, my friends. It's an important motto in and of itself. Sometimes it's very easy to slip into the idea that if you can't or don't want to do a thing, you've ruined someone's life. But then think of how many times you've said to someone, uh, can you come to my party? And they're like, no, you've not been bothered. You've been fine. Everything's okay. People decline on me all the time. People bail all the time. That's how life works. And none of us are having a freak out about it. In fact, sometimes it's a very nice, beautiful thing when on a Thursday you thought you had plans, but now you can stay in and eat caramel corn and watch Riverdale. Sometimes that's nice. Sometimes it's nicer than going to that cool place. I don't even know what those are, but I'm sure you do. So that's what I'm saying. Point number three, remember you're within your rights not to want to do a thing and then not do that thing. You know what it is that makes you happy. You know what it is that stresses you out. You know what it is that might trigger an anxiety attack. You know yourself. So you have to respect that. It can seem like, you know, a cop out when you're like, I know I'm I'm really bad at parties and maybe I should try to go. Why? If you don't want to go and you know you'll be miserable, then what are you doing? You can still test yourself. You can try different things, but also you got to listen to your gut. And if your gut's like, I hate this, listen to it. It knows. Point number four, keep it simple. You don't want to over explain because that is the worst and know that no one's expecting an explanation. All you really have to say is like, unfortunately I can't make it or, Oh my God, thank you so much for the invite, but I can't. Or my favorite is, Oh, I'm so slammed this week, but how about, and then you insert another time. No one's going to hold you accountable or say like, really? Well, why can't you come to this bowling alley? I need to know. Like that's a weird thing for someone to do. And then if somebody does get mad or wants an explanation that's very detailed, that might speak more to them than it does to you. 
most people can just respect a person saying, I would rather not. But let's acknowledge how saying no can be difficult because of the battle going on in your own mind. For a long time, I thought turning down work or plans or fun meant I was a failure, that I couldn't balance everything, or that I was incapable of handling my own shit. So no was a hurdle, but it doesn't have to be. No single person on the planet can do all the things unless they want to collapse in on themselves like a dying star. And no single person expects their friends or coworkers to do whatever they want them to do unless, again, they're demons. And the person asking you knows all of this. Remember, we're all just people. We are all people. We are not enemies. It's totally normal to say, I have limits and I have to stick to them. So it is so unlikely that a boss will fire you or a friend will ice you out or someone will dump you because you are in charge of the way your life gets to look. And if any of those bad things do happen, you will deal with it. And then that's another point for another day. So say no to stuff. Join me. I don't stand in lines and I don't go to the beach. But I will say this. I will go to the mall with whoever asks. So, you know, if you want to go to the mall, just let me know. I'm Auntie Donahue. These are some life lessons. Thanks for the life skill, Anne. And if you do like Hozier, that is fine. But I found that part very funny. We'll have more Rookie after this break. You guys, I was so excited to conduct this interview. You'll hear it in my voice. And I'm really excited to share it with you now. Um, George Saunders is a writer who started out as a field geophysicist. So he studied the Earth's physical properties. And he spent time working in the oil fields of Sumatra. He's written many books of short stories, books of essays. um, And he recently wrote his first novel, which is crazy. He's also an English professor at Syracuse University in New York, which is where he got his creative writing degree in 1988. And he has a really good piece for The New Yorker about uh, when he was a student there and writing teachers and the roles they play in our lives. Other favorite things he's written of mine, uh, The Braindead Megaphone, a book of essays, and the title essay in it is about how we create and consume media and how we lower our standards and infantilize ourselves by accepting, uh, you know, people like um, our current president, maybe, as uh, worth listening to. Um, That essay I really recommend. It only becomes more and more relevant. I think the first book of his that I read was 10th of December. It's a collection of short stories. We actually had to read a couple in when I was still in high school, like in various English classes. And I feel like they were the only assigned reading in those classes that everyone loved and like had a lot to say about. I could go on and on. I just also want to add that when I was preparing for this, I searched his name in the podcast app to see if there were any other podcast interviews with him I should hear first. And I had already listened to all of them because when I feel really low, I just search his name and listen to him express his worldview in his very comforting voice. And uh, it makes me feel a lot better. So you heard him on the show a few weeks ago when he did an Ask a Grown, but now we have our full interview. We started our conversation by talking about his latest book, Lincoln in the Bardo, which is a work of historical fiction about Abraham Lincoln and his, at the time, recently deceased son. I'm enjoying the book so much as I knew I would. Oh, thanks. Uh, And just congratulations on it. It was fun. It was a four-year, like, weird adventure. I really am. I'm kind of missing it now at this point, you know, kind of ramping down from it. I feel like it, well, I feel this way with everything I've read by you, but that you can really feel as a reader that you had fun writing it. Yeah, yeah. I had, when I was a younger writer, I had a big breakthrough, which is, I mean, it was like a two or three day period. And everything I learned from that, I've cared for, which was, before that, I thought the point of writing was kind of to be smarter than your reader and maintain control, you know, mm-hmm. basically talking down to the reader. And, uh, I, you know, I wasn't having any luck in that mode. And I had this kind of catastrophic realization, and suddenly I, I, I'm like, well, it's a, it's a conversation. And 
you have to imagine the reader as being as good as, as you, if not a little better, a little smarter, yeah. you know. Uh, and then your job is just to keep her on the hook by honest means, you know, by engaging her best self. So And so what that meant for me as a kind of South Side of Chicago guy was, oh, yeah, entertainment. You know, uh-huh. <laughs> you, if you're not having fun, nobody else is having fun. Right. So the contrast would be like the, you know, the bad date version of writing would be, you're on a date and you bring index cards, you know, and you're uh-huh. like, oh, seven fifteen, you know, ask about her mom or something. <laughs> and uh, that's a good way because you're in control, but it's bad because it's condescending and boring for the other person. So the good date is, I don't know what's going to happen, but I hope to God it's fun. And if it's not fun, I'm going to swerve off and find something that is fun, you know. Well, I feel like a lot of what you're taught about writing is like, obviously there are so many benefits to like outlines, knowing where you're going, and laying everything out ahead of time. And I really appreciate how much you, like I think you once called writing like a state of professional uncertainty. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> how do you become comfortable I hope I said that. that. That's a good yeah. one. <laughs> <laughs> no, and, I, and again, you know, I, I teach up at Syracuse and we uh-huh. see so many, we get like 650 applications and we pick six people. Mm. So we see so many different modalities of talent. So for sure, everybody has their own tick you know, and I know some people who are really rigorous outliners. Yeah. But even with those people, I think the trick is to um, do whatever you have to do to make that little moment of spontaneous fun for yourself. So mm-hmm. if you have to sort of plan 90% of it so then you can blop into fun mode, that's good. Right. But for me, as you said, it's mostly, um, I, you know, I was raised, uh, I was an engineer. Mm-hmm. So a lot of my, you know, so-called intellectual ideas are a little lame-ass, actually. And if I plan things that's what happens it's kind mm-hmm. of intellectualizing whereas uh the other thing i was raised with was a lot of fun in in the neighborhood and a lot of joking and sort of improv stuff so mm-hmm. uh this this sort of no planning approach is is much more amenable to me for sure uh-huh. yeah yeah well it also uh, having fun in the neighborhood on that note <laughs> <laughs> i i like feeling like i'm not reading something that was just like influenced by other writing and I, I'm curious what kind of, as you were growing up or realizing that you could actually be a writer um, in life, what was sort of in your in your psyche? I, th- I think it was partly, um, yeah, that's really interesting. Uh, I, I was raised uh, the oldest son, my two sisters, and my extended family, especially on the Texas side, was all women, mm-hmm. g- girls. And I grew up performing for them like I really like to perform for them and please them and uh, and more generally you know that Chicago like in the 70s early 80s it was a real uh, uh, stand up was really in the air you know mm-hmm. people were always like Richard Pryor and George Carlin and Monty Python so I think um, for me the uh, you know Juno Diaz told me once that he thought all writers uh, at some point in their life they learned that language was power so in his case, you know, his family came over from the Dominican Republic, and he was sort of the, the quickest adapter of English. So he, even though he wasn't the oldest, he was the one who was going out and doing the negotiations. Mm-hmm. So he learned language with power. And I think in our neighborhood, it was just understood that if you weren't a, a, an athlete, which I wasn't, and you weren't like a great-looking kid or something, then one way you could become powerful was through something like wit, you know. Mm-hmm. So that was really, I think, the first thing. Uh, and then years later, when I kind of shed this intellectual approach, that's what I went back to was, oh, yeah, you, you, funny is a way of uh, destabilizing somebody. Uh, it's, a, it's a way of kind of getting their attention a little bit. So I think it was mostly just that kind of um, uh, I, 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 when I thought of myself as a writer, I kind of sucked the place up a little bit. Mm-hmm. And when I thought of myself as an entertainer, then I, I could access all that childhood stuff that was about I mean, in some ways, kind of impure urges, like to hold the right. room, to impress people. Uh, you know, back when I was dating, uh, the first girl I ever dated, she broke up with me because she said, I did, you're always making jokes. You know? <laughs> and, I, and I made a joke, and then she... Right. So, so partly, I think, I guess what I'm trying to say is that for young writers, there's a moment of truth where you let everything you actually are to the table. Uh-huh. And you may not even know what that is. And often I think you don't even really like it. The stuff that you maybe unconsciously have been trying to keep out of the conversation is the stuff that saves you if, mm-hmm. you, if you're brave enough to let it in. But the trick is, that's for me, that wasn't a decision. Like, of course, everybody would say, oh, yeah, I'm going to be my best self or honest self. But I think through revision or through writing, that's how you f- that's how you find out who that person is that you actually are underneath the, the surface. You know? Right. So that's pretty fun. 
I like also the idea that you would, like the kind of bait and switch you sometimes have to do of like, don't think of it as, don't think of yourself as a writer, think of yourself as an entertainer. Or like I, you've talked a bit about with your new book, like try like kind of telling yourself you weren't writing a novel, yeah, so that yeah. it would stay kind of concise. Yes, I think I think there are a lot of. I mean, that's a great point because I think a lot of artists. What you really do is you learn to game yourself a little bit. You know, uh, I write best when I'm in this mood. Okay, get in that mood. Uh-huh. Uh, I write best when I prioritize this or that. And I think when I was younger, I thought there there was some kind of code book, like the artist's yeah. code book, and you must do it this way. But actually, I think it's a lot like. The, you know when, the way that we develop an adult personality mm-hmm. it's almost exactly analogous to the artistic arc because what you do is first of all you kind of you can't help but take stock of what you actually have uh-huh. and then you get into relation with it Th- that's to me that seems like the biggest thing so um, it, it is a bit like if a person I always joke with my students I say when you're trying to seduce somebody or talk your way out of trouble or uh rescue a bad situation what mode do you go into Mm -hmm. and that is often has some relation to your writing mode you know Uh I had a writing teacher once we we were a particularly stiff group you know we were very like arch literary and kind of just and he uh, got a little bit fed up and he said all right for the second half of this workshop after we take a break we're going to go around the table and each of you is going to tell a story all right go take a break and we're all like panic you know Mm -hmm. performance anxiety and and um that, but the thing was, when we came back, everybody in that class told a better story than they'd ever written. Right. And partly it was the panic of not wanting to look like a dope in front of your peers, you know. Uh, and in that moment, of course, you you know, you know, have no choice but to pull up your best self. Mm-hmm. So parts of the, the personalities that had been totally suppressed in the hmm. writing came out spontaneously. People who were funny were suddenly beautifully serious. People who were, you know, boringly serious were suddenly charmingly funny. Mm-hmm. So I think that for me, it, that's a kind of a comfort for a writer because whatever you're going to do for 300 pages or a whole screenplay or whatever, mm-hmm. or, or book of sonnets, it, it probably, it can't be that far from who you are really. Now, the beauty of the craft is that, uh, as I said, you, you might not really know who you are. You, th- you know who you think you are. Right. You know who you want to be. But I think through craft and revision sometimes the real you kind of just pops out and you're like oh wow yeah that's that's me i mean mm-hmm. i look at my books and that person is a lot nicer than i am and a lot <laughs> you know wittier and, and less anxious you know right so, yeah, yeah but it's nice to have that to say you know i'm not this person i am right now i'm not that crazy about him mm-hmm. but if you give me six months or a year i i might stand behind that thing that i wrote right know? yeah i listened to an interview oh it was on Dear Sugar when you were talking about critics <laughs> and you said something like um, like every work of art or writing is innately flawed and your job is to make the flaw something that's beautiful about it yes what do you think is the flaw in your new book oh, the, <laughs> and how did you make it beautiful yeah I mean a flaw or maybe like a, you know a hitch in the DNA somewhere yeah. so in this book you know the idea is that Lincoln uh, it's based on a true story Lincoln uh, went to a graveyard to uh, go into his son's crypt and reportedly even somehow interacted with the body so mm-hmm. that was a sort of seed idea well right away you're like okay so Lincoln's in the graveyard at night by himself hmm who's narrating that you know mm-hmm. you could do kind of a third person you know it was a dark night and Abraham Lincoln you know and even yeah. in that sense like ooh god don't you know yeah. uh, or you could do a first person like a monologue from the point of view of Lincoln which I didn't f- and again I, th- someone right. could do it but when I I think this is a key artistic principle when I turn my mind to that okay a first person or mo- internal monologue by Lincoln it's just a buzzkill. I just yeah. the needle just goes wah. Whereas if it's something you, you should be writing, I think you're like, oh yeah, you're kind of rubbing your hands together. Like this mm-hmm. would be great. Uh, you, you could say I could have saved myself a lot of hours of writing if I'd known that when I was younger. That actually right. writing should be. A, um, I don't want to say joyful because sometimes it's a pain in the ass, but it should be a kind of uh, experience to get you excited to try it. So mm-hmm. when I thought about um, you know a third person narrator, that seemed, seemed boring. Lincoln and that seemed boring and then you're in a problem because who's going to narrate this thing Mm -hmm. so the thing I've learned from these years of writing is that's actually not a problem that's actually great the fact that you got to go huh I don't know who's going to narrate this at the time it's a little frustrating because you feel like you're screwing it up but if you wait the story will answer it in this Mm -hmm. case you know the story said well how about who's in a graveyard at night 
ghost, you know. So suddenly that looks a bit like an innovation, but it's really just a solution to the innate suckiness of, of the idea, you know. Uh-huh. Um, then later there's a, uh, you know, I, c- I felt like I needed some historical spine to it because it, to support the emotion of the story. Uh, and I thought, how do I do that? And again, the same, same problem. I didn't want to sound too banal or kind of predictable or traditional. And then I had the idea of just sort of sampling, almost like musically, sampling these uh, bits from history books. Mm-hmm. So I, I think generally the, um, uh, you know, as soon as you say once upon a time, the reader kind of says, oh, no, there wasn't. You know, there's right. a, a resistance. Uh, that's actually your biggest tool, you know. So this goes back to the idea of intimate conversation. If I say, if I'm Kafka, I wish, mm-hmm. and I say, <laughs> um, you know, Gregor Samsa awoke to find he had been transformed into a giant beetle, the reader kind of goes, mm, I don't know, I don't know. You're you're uh, you're trying to play me a little bit here, you mm-hmm. know. And Kafka says, "Well, y- yes. C- can w- can we agree to that? That I've said this thing that's outlandish, but I promise you it's going to pay off." And then the reader says, "Well, all right, you know." So you're in this mm-hmm. uh, conversation where the the reader has said, "You've caused a little bit of a problem for me, Kafka. I'm resisting you at thirty percent." And Kafka, because he's an intimate communication with her, says, I know. That's all right. I know that. You know. So that's where it's, convers- it's a conversation. So right. a book that, I mean, somebody said a novel is a, well, a long work of prose. It has something wrong with it. You know. Uh-huh. So I think some, when I was a younger writer, I thought anytime I hit a problem in a story, I was screwed. And it was, and it was me. I was no good. But now mm-hmm. I'm like, a, 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 when you hit a problem in a story, it's the story trying to tell you, Please don't think so lowly of me. I actually have bigger plans than you than you have for me. Uh, there's this beautiful quote Einstein said: um, "No worthy problem is ever solved in the plane of its original conception." Hmm. So that means your story. You know, you have an idea for it, and for a while it's kind of docile and it goes along, and then at some point it gets a little bit of pride, and it's like, you know, I, I actually would like to be beautiful, and if you insist on telling me in that kind of controlling mindset that wants to keep me on a leash, I can't be beautiful. Right. And the story actually, like a little kid, it crosses his arms and says, I'm not coming out of this corner until you think more highly of me. Mm-hmm. So for me, that often means a big two or three month or longer lockup. Mm-hmm. But now I know that when that happens, the story is uh, gestating or, or trying to be a better version of itself, you know. I keep writing things and then being like, oh, the thi- I guess the thing I'm getting at or the, conclusions, the conclusion is actually something kind of that's been said many times before or is kind of cheesy or even new agey. Right, right. How do you, and this book too is, it's not satire, it's very earnest subject matter. How do you like approach that without making it cheesy and then without going so far in the other direction that it's yeah. just like removed and cool. I'll tell you a bit of a Zen parable that, that was taught to me by uh, this great producer named Stuart Kornfeld. He uh, was Ben Stiller's producer and we were working on a script and uh, there was a scene that was very domestic and I'm like, I don't know, I don't really want to do this scene in the kitchen, you know, and I'm like, uh, he said, well, just do it, you know, right, she needs to say this, he needs to say that. I said, yeah, but if, if you know, if it was done wrong, it's going to be so cheesy. And this long pause and he goes, how about we don't do it wrong? So, so that actually is the essential artistic conundrum is, yeah, with this material, it's so sad mm-hmm. and potentially maudlin and sentimental. So I think the writer going into it goes, yeah, I know. I know that mm-hmm. for sure. And then you just try not to do it wrong. And the, the pisser is, I think you can only do that line by line. You know, yeah. hill by hill. You you can't, there's not an all-purpose approach that will allow you to avoid the pitfall. But I think part of the artistic um, awareness is to kind of be really in touch with the pitfalls. It goes back to what we started with. Mm-hmm. Every work of art has a problem. So if you um, start a, a book like this about a kid dying, big pitfall is cheap sentimentality. Mm-hmm. And your best effort is to every day to go, don't be cheaply sentimental, you know. Mm-hmm. And then, and the only way you can do that is in the individual phrase, actually. You know? yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. You meditate, is that right? I, I, I try to. Yeah, I'm, I'm in a fallow period at the moment. But yeah, I, I have had really rich periods in the past. I, f- I feel like your writing is so good with um the kind, like millisecond to millisecond inner uh, monologues in people's heads. Yeah. Do you find that... Do you feel like that has become more honed or you pay attention differently to like mm. how your mind works since becoming interested in 
medication. Yes, that's very perceptible. I, or, or, and also it might be kind of both because I think I was, you know, before I was meditating and I was trying to do someone's internal monologue, that's kind of a form of meditation. You know, you're mm-hmm. watching your own mind to see what's going on. I, I think that you're right, though. When you, um, you know, I, it was kind of a big thing for me when I recognized that thought is actually action, you know. If I'm sitting here obsessing over something, that's as real as me moving this this water cup. Uh-huh. So then that, you know, creates this beautiful field of description that you can do because, of course, it's real, you know. Right. If thinking makes you go out and kill somebody or makes you give your life up for somebody, thinking is 100% active in the world. And and now the fun part is, can we describe it? No. You, of course not. I mean, if if we sat here for three minutes and I had access to your brain, mm-hmm. there's verbal things, there's subverbal things, there's images, there's sub-imagistic things. But what a great gift for a writer because just trying to describe it presents all kinds of opportunities. And if you even get close to it, it actually gives comfort to other human beings, I think. You know, uh-huh. the times I've seen neurotic thought in a book makes me go, oh, thank God I'm not alone, you know. Right. Or when you see somebody like in Shakespeare thinking, thinking logically and then doing the wrong thing. You're like, yeah, of course, I've done that. You know? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. How do you decide on a character you know you're going to want to spend all that time mm, with? That's a great That's a great question. And you know what? I'll, I'll try to give you the best answer I can, <laughs> although it's kind of hard to articulate. Um, when, okay, my thing is when we're writing or reading well, we're in this kind of, I mean, if you could do a brain scan, the brain is so alive. With, I mean, it's like, I think firing more fully than almost at any other time in your mm-hmm. in your life. So, so you know how when you're really in a book, everything, every comma has meaning. You know, every, uh, the, the arrangement of the words on the page has a mm-hmm. meaning. Even character names can sort of give off a little bit of a, a, a scent, you know. So my theory is if I'm writing correctly, uh, I'm in a kind of a, I don't want to make it sound too new age, but it's a sort of a quiet mind, intuitive thing where all I'm doing is reading the text and letting it fire energy back at me. Mm-hmm. And I'm trying to receive all of it, like not trying to negate or deny any of it, like everything. Then when I say I, I need a ghost, uh, well, I need a ghost. First of all, I'm not trying to make a ghost, but I, the character is moving from point A to point B and he looks to his left. So he could either see a shrub. He might see a shrub, but maybe he's going to see another ghost. Okay. That's the most important moment. And we, we, we try to intellectualize it. In fact, it's pretty simple. You look and your subconscious will supply. Uh-huh. You know? And now in my case, the subconscious supplies best when I'm really quiet in my mind. Or, or, or which is not dissimilar from improv mind where you're like, just give me something. Mm-hmm. I'm totally open to whatever you want to give me. And that... Um, this sounds so insane now, but it, it, it's almost like a feeling in the back of my head. There's a voice there that wants to come out. So what I do at that point is just unconditionally trust it. Mm-hmm. Don't, don't don't like uh, labor it with your own intellectual ideas about what that idea should mean, which is a real common thing that we would do. But just play. And and my theory is by that time your subconscious is so deep in that book that it knows shit that you your conscious mind could not know. Mm-hmm. So you just trust it to take the swerve, you know. That's really the whole thing. So the scary part is that means, you know, for all of us who aspire to write beautifully or do any art beautifully, the difference between our best self and our crummy self is in that split second of what I would call intuition. Hmm. And the whole, you know, craft of your life, instead of law school or whatever, is um, getting into relation to that moment and trying to, to, to sort of clear the pathway for it, you know. Really weird. It's hard to talk about, but I know that that's actually the difference. You know, right. when we talk about writing, we tend to be very, we, we want to reduce it and we want to explain it because it's easier. But I think in the moment of truth, it's just coming from some weird, magical, but reliable place. Yeah. And, and you know, the weird life job is, what do you do for a living? I get in touch with the split second of my intuition, <laughs> you know, <laughs> eight hours a day. Yeah. Yeah. What a, that's such a wonderful thing to get to do, though. I yeah. There's an interview with um, Kenneth Lonergan where he was talking about, like, editing um, his movie Margaret and all the different decisions in editing mm. that and getting really frustrated and listening to Beethoven and being like, how does he know what note goes mm-hmm. next? Mm-hmm. And then he was like, oh, of course, he doesn't know. He hears it in his head and then he writes it down. Right, right. And I, I'm curious, like, if there was any, like, what kind of myth-busting you experienced Mm. around that, you know, 
learning that like actually your intellectual mind is maybe not the smartest part of you yeah. or like did that happen when you were studying writing formally it happened uh well the way it, the symptom for me as i think it is for a lot of young writers is i just found somebody and imitated him so hemingway hmm. was my big my big hero and the, the process at that point was kind of like uh i'd read a hemingway story and I would try to make up like a shadow version, you know. I know I'd lived in Asia and worked in the oil fields, so I thought, oh, that, that's a good first book, you know. So mm -hmm. I'd kind of read a Hemingway story, kind of note where it got me, and sort of try almost like pick it up with with pincers, you know, and move it onto my yeah. page. And <laughs> so it was very calculating, and it was, as I say, controlling because I knew just what I wanted you to feel and wear, and the. Those moments were always a bit smug, you know. Like the takeo takeo would be like, "Don't be a capitalist oppressor," you know. <laughs> yeah, so there was none of, there was no real risk in it. It was just like you know. Um, but those were all very, very contro super controlled narratives, uh -huh. you know. Uh, and again, the whole thing was it was an, a stance of condescension. Well, you know, honestly, it's just that you get happy results uh, with certain procedures. And then your mind is so smart that it goes, do that again, you know. Right. Uh, try to occupy that mind state again, you know. Uh, so over the years, there, there was a time when I wrote my first book. I can remember this so clearly. Um, I was working at this engineering company. So it was all stolen time, which had a great effect on me. It made me really, it, a lot of the bullshit fell away. You couldn't do mm. a lot of research. You couldn't, you mm -hmm. know, burn incense or whatever. You, you just had to <laughs> sit down and do it. Um, and that coincided with this idea of this entertainment idea that I had. But I can remember really like, kind of being uh, in a state of wonder that I was starting to recognize that intuitive state. And I, I kind of learned to wait for it. And it was such a beautiful, um, it was almost like making a, a wonderful friend. And you, every time you went to that person, they would really get you, you know, you, reliably. You could bring anything to that person and they would shoot good energy back at you. And it was that, I would sit in my little, it was one of those big PCs that were like as big as a phone booth, you know, mm -hmm. and um, I'd go, okay, I've got eight minutes here. And then really just kind of take a breath and go, all right, quiet. And then that thing would, would kick in, you know. Right. It's really nice, you know. Now, having said that, you know, we, we don't want to be too simplistic because now I'm noticing there's that. But there's also a lot of other stuff, you know, like intellectualizing that does go right. on in organizing. So if it was just that, that would be cool. Right. But it's that. But also the complication of sometimes you actually do have a stupid intellectual idea but that's the next thing you're going to steer toward you mm -hmm. know so it's a really complicated sort of three-dimensional process how did it feel to write this many months ago and then have it kind of recontextualized in the time it was when it came out yeah because the, the 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 i had written it and finished it basically and then trump started running and hmm. so so i i kind of actually you know I, I at one point i thought i'm so glad i finished this because this book for me is what I, I mean, it's a lot of things, but one thing it is, is it's kind of my vision of our country, actually, in, in some complicated way. Mm -hmm. So I'm all right with it. And I'm especially all right with it because I, uh, I, I find maybe you, t I, I can't satisfy myself talking about politics off the top of my head. I say things and I'm like, yeah, everybody else is saying that shit, yeah, you know, yeah. or I say something and I think, oh, God, that's kind of harsh, you know, or that's not harsh enough. And right. so, <laughs> and I wrote a piece for the New Yorker about Trump. I spent five months and even mm -hmm. then I felt like, yeah, I just, I can't quite get at it. And then I thought, well, it feels like that's because anything that's that timely has to come out of a pretty surface level part of your mind. And I think with art, the reason we're all addicted to it is that if you can ha have the time to engage in art deeply for a long period of time, you're accessing this other part of the mind, which is much richer. It's more mm -hmm. capacious. It's just more human. So I was happy to have this book done before that right. happened because I think the temptation would be to somehow be timely, you know. Yeah. But um, I'm kind of feeling, you know, I've been saying this, but I, I think having had that experience with this Lincoln book, I'm doubling down on the idea that art is essential to the culture. I think, you know, after 9-11, uh -huh. I thought maybe uh, fiction, why are we writing fiction? Right. But this time around, I'm like, you know, I think that is, we somehow neglected that maybe. And even in my lifetime, you know, I notice, uh, I mean, I was from kind of a, a, an engineering background, got into art, and I think I always somehow, you know, was willing to self-marginalize a little bit to say, well, yeah, I'm a writer, you know, and right. I know that what we do isn't that important anymore, you know. And I'm kind of feeling like, well, this period we're in right now might have shown us the error of our ways because if you take a culture and tell it that art is just frippery, you know, it's just a yeah. second-class thing, what's going to happen to them? 
I would say they're going to get less soulful. They're going to get dumber. Mm-hmm. They're going to get in a really uh, shaky relationship with their own language. They're going to be easily lied to. They're going to be ungenerous. And you, I mean, that sounds yeah. like right now, you know. So I, I actually think our neglect of the arts, both through the government and maybe even, you know, just culturally, is is costing us now. Mm-hmm. You know, I really think so. I, I think that's true. I mean, I feel a little bit schmaltzy saying it, but uh, I know the person I am when I'm writing a book, and the person I am when I'm on Facebook or something, you know. Uh, and, yeah. yeah, and I like the first guy a lot more. Yeah, <laughs> oh my, it's truly, yeah. I become just like a a rat. Or like a, a reptile person, I yeah. become like a, a monster. Yeah, and it's, re- like, it's reactive, and yeah. and you also, you know, the other interesting thing is, when you write fiction, you're always working with your projection of some imaginary other. Uh-huh. So you usually imagine that person below you to start mm-hmm. with, and then in in the process as you're revising, just to make your prose better, you revise the person up to your level. So that's mm-hmm. a, a kind of an empathy practice, basically. Well, when you're in social media. Uh, you're projecting another, but you're not doing any work on it, you know, just like a dickhead and you fire off, you know. Yeah. Uh, and th- so that's okay. I mean, everything has its place, but I think <laughs> if you've ever written uh, fiction or, you know, or you, you notice that you have a, that a person has an ability to train themselves in imagining people more three-dimensionally, mm-hmm. which is always good, even if the person is really a bad person, to, you know, to imagine that person three-dimensional in his badness is very empowering because if you're going to go to fight somebody better you should truly understand them and i would say right. even better you should understand them sympathetically mm-hmm. uh it doesn't mean you have to be a wimp but it means you really know the person in their, their totality you know so. right mm-hmm. i like hearing that because i have so many i mean a lot of rookie writers and artists but also friends of mine uh mainly writers who are going like well it feels so stupid to write anything other than anything that it's not about politics and it feels so useless to just make art and it feels solipsistic and I was talking about it with my sister who's a visual artist and she was like I'm I still eat breakfast like I'm also going to take photos or I think that's right yeah um well especially because you know one of the things that I think people have to do in this situation is take care of themselves mm -hmm. you know and and I, I feel like you know if this government which has already deprived us of so many things I don't want it to deprive tens of thousands of young artists of the thing they love to do at at this essential moment in their development if they're in their 20s. That would be like, you know, you talk about the, the, the dark forces winning. Yeah. Why don't you denude a whole generation of artists by distracting them, you know? Oof. Yeah. So, so I, I think I really believe that um, people in your generation... Uh, I, I I almost feel generation like I'm so sorry because it shouldn't be you shouldn't have to deal with this. <laughs> right. But I really think the rallying cry should be, we we know what we believe. You know we we believe in art. We believe in empathy. We believe in sense of humor. We believe in peace. Uh, okay, this is what hardship looks like. Actually, mm-hmm. this is you. Know, we maybe haven't known it before. Let's not give up on the things we really believe and let's double down on it and show the world that this is what what actually real will work you know and the other thing i would say is i think everybody i mean i'm an i'm kind of a naturally uh uh i'm a negotiator you know i like Mm -hmm. people and i feel like i can sort of talk people into stuff and i like to be liked and i like to be thought of as kind and all this uh so that so that's my mode and that's the mode i'm gonna do this fight in Mm -hmm. but if a person is a fighter Mm -hmm. you know fight and if a person is a singer, sing. And if a person is a gymnast, be a gymnast. But I, I don't think you have to, you know, sort of uh, deny your essential self. But maybe right. you have to actually bring it fully to the game. Um, this is uh, going to make me want to kill myself. But didn't <laughs> Abraham Lincoln say, whatever you are, be a good one? No? I think he should have said Guys, it. That's, right. I like that. I don't know Anyone? if he did. That sounds like the, it's really funny because there's a whole. It's amazing how many things are one of the things are attributed to him, and they you know they either yeah are, right. But, but I, that's right. It's, Whatever um, would be a good one. Yeah, sorry for means, the alternative fact. No, 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 no. that's uh, but that, I love that idea because if you have, uh, you know, an essential energy, if you have an essential energy, mm-hmm. uh, or a desire, even if it's a little bit of a weird desire, I, I feel like as somebody who's almost sixty. Part of your job as a young person is to burn through that desire. Don't don't look askance at it. Just uh, if you want to be famous, all right. That's how you were made. 
go for it. Uh, whatever your desire is, as long as it doesn't hurt anybody, yeah. I think you, the idea is to burn through it quickly because then you find out what's on the other side of it. Like, you know, I always uh-huh. wanted to be a writer. I always wanted to be. And I actually, from the time I was a little kid, I, I always liked the idea of being known for doing something well. You know, uh-huh. I just, I mean, at four years old, I remember thinking that. I used to, I used to take credit. I t- one time took credit for writing Swan Lake. That's what a little crazy <laughs> shit I was. But I, but I think, so then the trick is, okay, you can deny those essential energies. Right. In which case they just fester your whole life and you're yeah. frustrated. Or you can say, yeah, I really want to be this. And the quicker you do it, which means if you're going to be something, be a good one, then I think you have the possibility of arriving in another place where you're like, oh, yeah, actually, I don't, I don't want fame. I want to be known for doing something good. Yeah. You might burn through that into some other, you know, so I think mm-hmm. you... Yeah, you know, throw down a little bit. What have you learned from your students from being a teacher? Well, you know, the one thing that's re- that I we get about 650 applications and six people come, so they're off the charts already. And mm-hmm. the one thing that's really wonderful is just to say, you know, talent is eternal. There's no, uh, there's been no wavering in the many thousands of human years of human life in talent. Every generation is talent. So now the question is what flavor is this generation's talent presenting in uh so for an older person it's wonderful to go yeah i know you guys have more talent than imaginable now let me try to understand what you're trying to say and uh what particular things is your generation bringing to the table that i have to have to learn to understand Mm -hmm. and then the other thing that's wonderful is you know every year no matter what we sit down and we start reading the great stories by you know whoever and uh if you're a working artist, it's so good to have your clock cleaned like that. You know, you, you might start thinking you're kind of good, and then you read Chekhov or, or Zora Neale mm-hmm. Hurston, and you're like, oh, yeah, so I'm not really that good, you know? <laughs> and that's actually very very cleansing and you yeah. know, healthy. I actually wonder uh, about... Well, I hear from so many of our readers who are, like, really afraid to send something in, whether it's to Rookie or anywhere, mm-hmm. just, like, fear of rejection. Yeah. Uh, is that something you end up like talking about a lot in your class yeah and to myself i mean it's i think everybody one thing everybody has it of course if you care about writing of course you you care if you get rejected because it's Mm. rejection it means that you're not doing it you know right but uh, the one thing i think is true is if you get in relation to your work and i again i hate to be a you know a proselytizer for revision but if you get into an intelligent relation with revision rejection is easier Mm-hmm. Because it's not saying you're bad. It's just saying the work isn't done, you know. Yeah. And likewise with writer's block, you know, if you have writer's block, David Foster Wallace said it's always a case of a uh, kind of um, artificially elevated standards. Mm-hmm. And again, the antidote is revision because it's not supposed to be good the first time. And mm-hmm. you're supposed to get rejected, you know. I, I, but I think, I, always, I think, too, a good thing for people is a, a, a feeling of gamesmanship like fuck it i'm just it's just nobody died i wrote yeah. a story nobody died i right. got rejected nobody died uh, and i and i suggest that um and can i tell you especially for my young women writers i suggest this because it's not a level playing field for women in any sense anywhere but in art especially not for a lot of reasons one is has to do with the good old you know family expectation that if and we saw this in our family uh my wife and I were both writers. She studied with Toni Morrison. We started having kids, and we were both trying to write and working, working, working. You know, when somebody was coming over, if the house looked weird, we should have both got blamed, but I think this I went to her a little mm-hmm. more, you know? So I, I think a woman writer has to be, and also there are the cultural conditions that tell women to, to be nice, humble, all those things. Which even mm-hmm. though it's it's what the year it is, that stuff is still 100% engaged. So I think that my young women writers have to be especially like warriors <laughs> in protection of their own time and right and artistic energy, you know. Yeah. Uh, can I tell you one story that I think this applies? When I was younger, I was really a mess. I, I was like a roofer living in my aunt's basement, trying to write but not really doing it because I didn't want to be rejected, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had this harebrained scheme to uh, to go to El Salvador and cover the war, even though I didn't speak Spanish and I had no money. It was <laughs> dreamy. But I went to see a friend of mine, and he wasn't home, but his dad was home. And his dad was just this mysterious presence. I'd seen him, but he, I, you know, he's a truck driver. I never talked mm-hmm. to him. So I thought, you know, maybe I'll, I'll ask a grown up. I'll, I'll talk to the grown man. And so we were talking, you know. And he says, so, uh, you know, what are you doing? I said, well, you know, I, I want to be a writer, which in our neighborhood wasn't a thing really. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, uh, you know, I'm going to go to El Salvador and cover the war. And 
And he goes, he goes, is that your dream? I said, uh, yeah, it is. He goes, well, you better fucking do it then. I said, yeah, yeah. And he said, you know why? I said, I said no. He said, because uh, if you don't do it, you know who you're going to blame. I said, yeah, myself. He goes, bullshit, you'll blame your wife and kids. Right? And now, <laughs> and that was the end of the conversation. But years later, when I was working and trying to write, I thought about that. And I mm-hmm. thought, well, I can either screw my employer or my family, you know. Uh, so I think for, for young women writers especially, but for all young artists, recognize that what might present to you as selfishness, you know, or self-absorption or, uh, okay, maybe, but if you don't take care of that stuff, then you're not going to be fully present for the people who need you later. Even if you try and fail, you, you're still going to be uh, free of that burden a little bit. So mm-hmm. I, I think it's it can be a form of, um, I don't know what you call it, like sort of... Uh, kindness to your future self to go for it if you if you want to go for it go for it and if the culture is pushing you back and trying to stop you almost like self give yourself give yourself permission to push back because in the end it's only going to cost you you know i think that's really true and i see it in my young writers you know they they have to in this culture art isn't that respected you know so those of us who love it have to be really we have to learn to game ourselves and play uh with our own attitudes so we don't do this sort of self-immolation of, you know, abandoning art. Yeah. Yeah. (sighs) That was my interview with writer George Saunders. Don't know if you heard the tears falling down my face. His newest book is called Lincoln and the Bardo. I loved it. I think you might too. Pick it up wherever you find great books, such as a local independent bookstore. We'll be back after this break. Now it's time for Ask a Grown, where we ask real-life grown-ups to answer questions from rookie readers on crushes, teachers, life, etc. Today on the show, we have Jenna Wortham. She writes about technology for the New York Times and co-hosts the podcast Still Processing, which is one of my favorites. And we also have Jasmine Hughes, who's an associate editor at the New York Times Magazine. The three of us met up in New York City one day so that they could answer a question from one of you. Hi. My name is Amaka, and I consider myself pretty confident in public, but I care so much about how I look and what people at school think. Any tips? It would help a lot. Thanks. You two are both very confident and beautiful. Oh, Help her. Uh, so she is, wait, so her dilemma is she feels confident, but at school, like, people don't treat her that way or like pretty confident in public uh-huh but cares about it sort of falls apart when she gets at home. Sc- or uh i care so much about how i look and what people at school think i don't know if like school and in public are the same right okay. right right but i think it's maybe it's like she's able to project confidence but actually cares a lot i see what you're saying okay okay, okay. interesting well mocker you're already halfway there first she's promise. halfway there yeah she feels confident you that's feel like confident. a huge you're part of it projecting confidence that's such a like a life skill that it takes people so long to learn that people have to work on and refine throughout their entire life. Mm, but how do you translate that confidence into actually like swallowing it and believing it? Right, right. Not having or like it? not being dependent on like other people's opinions of yourself. Right. I mean, I have these moments all the time where I'm like, what would Rihanna do? <laughs> what would no. Nikki do? Absolutely. What would Beyonce do? I look at them. I, I look to those women to be like, how how does Beyonce feel when someone's like lemonade's trash? She like laughs and takes a yacht out into the ocean. You know, it's like <laughs> I don't have any of those things at my disposal, uh-huh. but I can appreciate that sentiment. You know, mm-hmm. right? I do the same thing, but I also like in this way where I still feel like I'm a little girl looking up to all my friends. I think, what would yes. my friend do? Like that's someone who I look up to just as much as I would do Beyonce or Rihanna, but I know them very well and I can mm. almost see that process of like how they want to deal with things. And if there's someone who I'm like you know what, they would take this in a super cool way. They'll know how to do the situation. I try to, like, just channel them in a way, channel that strength, mm-hmm. um, because it's so easy to tap into. And then before longer, like, it's no longer, like, what would Jenna Wortham do? It's like, oh, I do that now. Right. It uh-huh. just becomes right. second nature. I also think um, I have one strategy for that, for, like, those kinds of, like, that spiral of anxieties. That sometimes I'm just, like say it to the egg and smash the egg, which is like a really weird, I don't know, I'm Mm. a very visual person, I don't know where that comes from, but sometimes I'm like, oh, I have a really bad 
thing that I can't let go of. And I'm just like a visual manifestation of just like, you know what I mean? Put in a box and burn the box. Like whatever it is, like acknowledge it and then get rid of it, which is really helpful. And then I also have like what I call like my like confessionals, which I have the friends who I really, really, really trust to have those conversations with where I'll be like, oh my God, like I'm just, oh, I'm stuck on this thing. It's like, just get it out, like better out than in. And like, Mm -hmm. you have those people in your life where you can be like, I know this isn't necessarily real, but like, I just want to say it so they can stop being top of, it's like singing a song that's stuck in your head to like stop thinking about the song. Mm. I have those people where I'm like, boom, you know, and then it's (laughs) done. And like, that's really, that's like very productive for me. Also, if you can go to therapy. Highly recommend. Same. Never be embarrassed by therapy. Mm-hmm. No. I love mm-hmm. talking about myself. I would do it every day if I could afford mm-hmm. to. Um, going to therapists, it doesn't have, well, I was going to say it's a cool thing, but it doesn't have to be cool. It's mm-hmm. a healthy, productive thing. And if it makes you feel better, you should do it and you should never feel bad about it. I think that there's like a difference between having, you know, there's like the stuff that you have to deal with where uh, friends or you know, depending on what the issue is, a therapist would be the person who can kind of, like, work you through it and help you build that sort of, like, foundation that where even if you still have moments of, like, shame or self-doubt or insecurity, you're tethered to something pretty firm. Mm. And I do think that if Amaka is able to kind of project confidence in public then it's like she has the sort of shell mm-hmm. right. building the inside she already of has it the tools is like it'll sure. just keep happening as she does what you guys are saying finding <laughs> like a support system yes does that sound right yeah definitely Absolutely. definitely that was real life grown-ups jenna wortham and jasmine hughes from the new york times answering one of your questions if you want some advice, email your question to youaskedit at rookiemag.com, along with your first name or nickname, your age, and your location. And if you'd like to hear your voice on the Rookie Podcast, you can record yourself asking the question on your phone or computer. Keep it to about a minute long and email it to us at podcast at rookiemag.com. So that's the show this week. I really hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. I'm Tavi Gevinson. See you next week. If you like the Rookie Podcast, please give us a rating and review the show on iTunes. We want to know what you think as we bring you more weekly episodes. You can find us at RookieMag.com, RookiePodcast.mtv.com, and at RookieMag on Twitter and Instagram. On Twitter and Instagram, I, your host, am Tavi Tool, T-A-V-I-T-U-L-L-E. Plus, check out podcasts.mtv.com and at MTV Podcasts on Twitter and Instagram for more shows from the MTV Podcast Network. This episode of Rookie was produced by Mukta Mohan, Michael Catano, and Kasia Mihailovich for the MTV Podcast Network. Thanks to Lauren Redding for making the Rookie podcast happen. And thanks to Lena Singer for picking advice questions and to Shamir for the Rookie theme song. Thanks to Maria Inez Gull for the portraits and doodles, to Cynthia Merhedge for Rookie's logo, to Hattie Stewart for the logo doodles, and to Beth Heckel for the jewels.